Welcome back to Extra Credit, a card and banking podcast from TransUnion. This is Josh Turnbull. I'm here with Craig LaChapelle. And Craig, I don't know about you, but I, I love that interview with Susan last month. I thought it was it was so fun and so good. It, it was fantastic. She um, provides probably double the insight we bring together. It was, uh, I, I hope, very beneficial for listeners. Good. And I've, I've certainly, I did start to look at uh, the the Cook County Board of Elections process for volunteering for for elections coming up. And it's interesting, Susan certainly has has one foot, I would say, in, in the traditional FI world based on her background and current board service and, and one foot firmly in the, the fintech space. And that gave such a great perspective. And this month's guest, Jason Mikula, definitely has uh, both feet, I would say, firmly planted in the fintech space. And as you and I were thinking about who to have on, it's an interesting choice given that we designed this podcast for folks sitting in banks and credit unions but think that he's got such an interesting perspective seeing what he does and we'll really ask him to to take that perspective and think about it from a, a bank or credit union lens great let's get to it let's welcome jason sounds good jason thanks for joining us uh you make your home in the the netherlands you've been there for a, a few years i think right to two and a half years now, which is uh, hard to believe, almost all of which has been uh, COVID impacted, but. <laughs> yeah, ready to, to see it in its non-COVID state, I'm sure. So we wanted to to start with a few questions just to test your knowledge of your your new adopted homeland. But before Craig starts grilling you with those, thought maybe uh, rather than me do an introduction, just ask you to introduce yourself for the folks listening and provide some background on your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. The the quick version is I spent the better part of a decade working in uh, consumer credit in the U.S. and the U.K. And as you mentioned, I moved here to the Netherlands about two and a half years ago. Uh, and now I focus primarily on uh, advising and consulting with early to mid-stage startups, uh, mostly consumer-facing, mostly in the U.S. And I also write and publish uh, fintech and banking newsletter called Fintech Business Weekly, which I encourage your listeners to subscribe to. Uh, and those uh, those things keep me pretty busy. And I just uh, another plug for that. That's that's something that I certainly get a lot of value from and look forward to to looking at every week. So do uh, echo your comments, encouraging people to take a look at that. Yeah. So Jason, before I get started uh, grilling you with zingers, just out of curiosity, what city in the Netherlands do you live in? So I spent the first year in Amsterdam, uh, and then about 18 months ago, uh, bought a house in Utrecht, or Utrecht, which is the easier uh, American pronunciation, which is like maybe 30 minutes south of Amsterdam. So how many pairs of clogs do you own? Uh, I own, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I own maybe one pair of clogs, but they're, uh, you know, they're Birkenstocks, not the wooden ones, which, uh, which are for gardening, actually, I think. Well, that's disappointing to hear. Um, <laughs> all right, let's start with the, the trivia. Enough tomfoolery. First singer, William of Orge introduced and popularized what in the British Isles when he occupied thrones there in the 16th century? So it's multiple choice. A- T, B, hard cheese, C, gin, D, herring. I'm going to go with uh, hard cheese. Oh, so close, but it was gin. Ah, okay. Number two, the Dutch are the heaviest consumers of what? Eating on average over two kilograms per year. 
A, tulip bulb flower. <laughs> B, herring. C, mayonnaise. D, licorice. I'm going to go with herring. Unfortunately, it was D, <sighs> licorice. Man, you... I, I'm, I'm embarrassing myself. This is yeah, what happens but... when you move in COVID. You don't get to get out and experience the <laughs> local culture. Yeah, but you have a lot of new topics, trivia topics, for when you go to the <laughs> pub now in the Netherlands or in Utrecht. Uh, no, uh, number three. Until recently, the Dutch king had a side hustle doing what? Oh, my gosh. Let me see what these are. I know the are. answer. It's it's uh, flying planes for KLM. Easy. Got no it. Multiple choice required. That one I know. <laughs> Got it. Was he well, ever your well pilot? Done. Not not as of yet, but I I need to like pay attention to the PA and see if he's ever uh, flying any any of my flights. I think we're gonna move away from the uh, fun trivia into perhaps a little more serious questions on your background and your vocation and really dive into your perspective on the fintech and lending industries. Mm -hmm. So Josh, if you're okay, I'll start because I have a couple of uh, questions lined up. Go for it. So Jason, you spend your days monitoring developments in financial services broadly, but in, in, in some cases more specifically in fintech, especially from the lens of a credit card lender or a financial institution. What are one or two trends that are overhyped right now and one or two that people aren't paying enough attention to? Ooh, so a two-parter. Okay, first first part, overhyped. <clears throat> um, you know, buy now, pay later is, is, you know, I feel like the obvious choice there. Uh, I would peg, you know, maybe 2021 is the peak of the hype cycle. Uh, and we're already starting to see, um, you know, in... The companies that have gone public and a lot of the ones in uh in the public market are in australia you know share prices uh, valuations really come down um and even a firm you know in the us uh and uh consolidation so i mean i don't you know by no means do i think as a product or as a feature that the category is going away uh but i do think that perhaps we're sort of past the peak of that hype, hype cycle and starting to see some rationalization in you know the product structure the valuation and, and some sort of uh, reconfiguration of what's happening in the market there uh number two on on overhyped um and this maybe is less from uh i guess like press perspective and more from uh what i see in in some of the product features particularly on the fintech side is uh credit builder products which is, of course, you know, relevant to the space that, that you're in. Um, <clears throat> but these seem to be tacked on to almost everything these days, whether it's a credit building loan, which is something that has existed for you know, quite a while, but is popping up in new formulations, uh, secured card products, which you see some of the neobanks, particularly those aimed at so, sort of lower income, lower credit score, uh, moving into uh, logically because they expand the, the interchange that they're able to get. Um, and even, you know, reporting subscriptions for things like Netflix or Spotify or your cell phone, you know, as a, as a trade line. From the conversations I've had with people who are ingesting that data, so, so you know, lenders, uh, particularly those that use alternative data, they've expressed some skepticism to the predictiveness of some of these data points versus other areas that are becoming more popular, like cash flow based underwriting, 
On the flip side, uh, things that I think uh, creditors, lenders are not paying nearly enough attention to, you know, the payments universe is, you know, rapidly changing. And, and there's a lot of arguments to be made that the U.S. is, you know, a decade, if not more behind, um, you know, other countries and not just, uh, you know, well-developed countries in, in Western Europe. You've seen Mexico, Brazil, and India roll out uh, very low-cost, real-time payment systems. Mexico has had a, a little bit less adoption versus, uh, you know, India and and Brazil. Uh, this change is coming to the U.S. You know, both in the form of um, FedNow and the Clearinghouse's RTP, real-time payments network. And there, you know, you might ask, like, okay, what does this have to do with lending? You know, particularly in segments of consumers who live paycheck to paycheck having their funds, you know, paycheck potentially delivered on a daily basis is going to change their savings and spending habits and thus by extension change their borrowing habits. Um, there are also some other opportunities there in, in payroll linked lending and underwriting that I think aren't, you know, getting nearly as much attention as they deserve. Um, and then lastly, on the not paying enough attention to, you know, I would argue regulation. I mean, I'm sure that behind closed doors, uh, companies are paying plenty of attention to regulation, but uh, as far as topics that you see, you know, pop up, you know, whether it's podcasts like this or, or you know, more mainstream trade publications, you know, the the current uh, administration, and then setting aside any of my own, you know, personal political feelings, is clearly taking a much more activist stance, you know, at a federal level, um, and you're seeing a lot of activity uh, at the state level when it comes to small dollar lending. Uh, and APR cap specifically, you know, uh, above or below 36%. And uh, ancillary, I mean, even overdrafts, which aren't specifically regulated as a form of credit, many consumers use that as a form of short-term small-dollar loan. And while I think it's great that banks are lowering or eliminating the fees attached to overdrafts, we haven't yet seen what the second-order impacts are, which potentially are less availability of overdraft. And I, I think that that's something I've barely seen discussed that could have significant knock-on impacts in, in the ecosystem. That's a that's a great perspective. I hadn't thought through that last part in as much detail as as you have, um, but that's why you're on the show. I, I do have a, a a question, and it's something that you've only briefly, I think, alluded to. Is it, it's around the it's payments, but it has to do with cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. Three three years out, what's your gut feel? Is there going to be prevalent use in payments, or will it still primarily be a store of value? Yeah, so I mean, this this, this is interesting, right? And uh, I, I wouldn't position myself as a deep expert on the crypto space, but the narrative has evolved, right? Originally, Bitcoin was supposed to be digital cash. You know, obviously, due to the extreme volatility in in the price of that asset, you know, it, it's not very good as a payment mechanism, at least not in its sort of uh, first order implementation. Um, you are seeing some changes and improvements that may make even Bitcoin more applicable as a payment mechanism. Um, so there is a so-called L2 protocol, which is a, a layer of technology that runs on top of Bitcoin's blockchain called Bitcoin Lightning Network. Uh, and without boring your listeners too much, it kind of operates akin to Visa or MasterCard in the sense that it, it authorizes 
and holds a chunk of a user's money and then settles those transactions in batches later. And so it solves some of the problems in Bitcoin as far as the expense of executing a transaction um, and uh, latency in executing transactions. So you are seeing some technological improvements in these older cryptos. Um, I think really the area... I got to tell you, we're going to keep that. That adds character. Yeah. Oh, totally. If anyone <laughs> doubted it, that you were actually you know in Europe. That is clearly yeah. European. Uh, it, it's funny because like I live in the quietest town ever, like on a river. That's like the first time I've ever heard a uh, ambulance siren. Uh, as far as crypto goes, you're more likely to see applications from stable coins, uh, particularly to the extent that those come within the banking regulatory perimeter, right? And I think the next six to 12 months are going to be really critical as we see how the Biden administration's executive order plays out, right? He instructed all these different agencies to run off, do studies, get input from stakeholders, and that will form the basis of uh, policy that's formulated to regulate you know, both these crypto assets like Bitcoin uh, and Ethereum, as well as stable coins. And if those do come within sort of the more established regulated banking sector, I think there is an opportunity for stablecoins to form uh, an alternate payment rail. Jason, your operator experience was largely US-based, but as you mentioned, your focus is, is global now, certainly. So I'm curious, what are you seeing happen outside the US? You mentioned a couple of those things already that's instructive for someone who's maybe listening to this sitting inside a, a bank or a credit union or a traditional FI space in the US. I mean, I, I don't know if I would necessarily consider this instructive, but um, perhaps aspirational. Uh, you know, something that, that as an external observer, um, you know, watching the U.S. from outside and also operating or, or monitoring some of these other markets that, that I guess frustrates me is, you know, the U.S.'s seemingly inability to moder modernize its regulatory environment. Um, and I suppose that that's not wholly bad. Like there have been some interesting innovations that are born from that, whether it's, you know, fintech bank partnerships when it comes to lending or when it comes to, you know, neobanks like Chime and Vero. Like that is a very, in a sense, peculiar and specific American <clears throat> structure. And, and, you know, that has enabled certain kinds of innovation. But if you talk to people in the space, you know, the that's born out of necessity. Um, particularly because if you're a non-bank lender, you know, going to get 50 state lending licenses, you know, or, or if you're even in the crypto space, going to get 50 state money transmitter licenses is uh, expensive and time consuming. And, and what you've seen in countries, you know, as varied as the UK, France, Mexico, Brazil uh, are, you know, sort of modernizing uh, and creating new regulatory categories, new licensing categories to address some of these new products, right? So they might go by uh, the name, you know, e-money institution, uh, which is what Revolut operates under in the UK, um, or, you know, uh, non-bank lending licenses that, that allow companies to engage in lending with a lower threshold of regulation than if they were a full bank. You know, the, the US has I think inarguably lagged some of its, you know, peer or competitor countries in in modernizing that aspect, and, and you know, the private market has found a way to adapt and still move forward. So I, I don't think it's wholly bad, but I think there are certainly some well, um, 
know, well-established or well-agreed-upon barriers that could use some updating. I mean, even looking at, you know, some aspects that are more specific to the credit industry, like the Fair Credit Reporting Act um, or the CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act, you know, these were written in the 1970s mm-hmm. when computing was done on punch cards um, and, and really, uh, in a sense, are, you know, holding back, uh, in my opinion, you know, potentially holding back innovation in the space in the U.S., Yep. And Jason, you hit a couple times on with payments and interchange and things in your comments, thinking about, you know, what you're seeing there in crypto, talking about some of the the pressures in BNPL. I'm curious what you're seeing outside the U.S. that, you know, if I'm, I'm sitting in a payment space or thinking about revenue models in the U.S., you know, I might want to keep my eye on. Yeah, so this, I mean, to, to give a, a local market example from here in the Netherlands, um, you know, I remember when I was living in the U.K., and I would come and visit here. You know, the the two big chain grocery stores do not accept Visa or Mastercard, like period, full stop. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I had that awkward moment where I'm at the checkout, and I'm like, wait a minute, everything in my wallet is Visa or Mastercard or Amex. You know, none of which they take. Um, why is that? You know, the popular payment network here is Maestro, which is a owned and sort of a sister network to Mastercard, but the uh, interchange is capped at a flat two cents per transaction. You know, you compare that to, you know, a Durban exempt bank in the U.S. where it's like 1.4, 1.5%. Uh, and you can start to see why business models that could work in the U.S. Uh, so basically, you know, a, a non-bank payments company or whatever non-bank, uh, you know, debit card company like Chime can operate based on interchange revenue. Whereas that model is is you know far more challenging to exist uh, here in the Netherlands or even in you know wider in the EU where interchange is capped at twenty bips. Um, now on the flip side, I don't think that's entirely bad because you can make an argument that it's enabling uh, consumers who are poorly served by establishment banks getting hit with overdraft fees, account account maintenance fees, NSFs. You know, it's giving them a better solution. And like maybe there's some sort of weird cross subsidy between you know high spenders and low spenders, um, but it enables sort of like a product that didn't previously exist. But I think at it, it, the macro level, all signs point to you know compressing uh, rates for payments. And so if your business model is dependent on getting that interchange, you know maybe you're okay today, tomorrow, next year, but as some of these alternate payment mechanisms come online in the U.S., whether it's the um, you know, FedNow or Clearinghouse RTP, or potentially something tied to stable coins or CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, everything suggests that there's going to be a compression of those rates. And I would assume that if you're in a, in a company where that is your primary source of revenue, you're thinking about, like, what's next? How do I diversify? So if this goes away, you know, I still have a business. Mm-hmm. Hey, Josh, I have a really, <clears throat> excuse me, I guess compelling question. So you described that situation in the grocery store. What did you do? Did you have to bag groceries? <laughs> um, you know, they do have uh, ATMs in, you know, most of the grocery store, grocery stores here. So I like ran, got some cash. Surcharge free withdrawal, by the way, uh, and decent exchange rate, and then came back and, and paid with physical euro banknotes. 
But did you have any licorice in your order? <laughs> no, Probably but he had plenty of, plenty of herring and mayonnaise. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tell you, one, one, of my, one of the times I'm most uncomfortable, it doesn't happen that often, but when I go to the grocery store somewhere else and I've forgotten my wallet and I'm up there with a bunch of stuff, that is, <laughs> that is, uh, that's, that's my public speaking fear, I think. All right, back, back to serious uh, questions. So one of the things we're seeing... Uh, in the U.S., well, actually all over, to, to your last point, is we're seeing a lot of non-bank entities work to stand up, not just payment programs, but credit card programs, specifically in the U.S. And, you know, given your experience, if you were sitting on the board of one of these companies, what questions you would be would you be asking as these investments are made in the space? So that's a, a great question. I mean, I think standing up a credit card lending program you know, is or has been substantially more complicated than doing installment lending. So you, if you're as old as the three of us and, and you can remember back into you know 2015, 2012, you know the the entry point for fintech uh, really writ large, but especially in the lending space was, installment loans. Um, credit cards, uh, by way of comparison, require significantly more partners to operationalize, right? You need to have a bank partner. Uh, you need to have an association, Visa, MasterCard. You need an issuer processor. Of course, you need a debt facility, something to actually fund these loans. Um, you know, putting those pieces together has become simpler than the last time I was involved in such a project, you know, thanks to companies like Deserve and Marketa and Galileo and Highnote that sort of abstract away some of the complexity uh, and some of the you know compliance and regulatory uh, headaches of creating these kinds of programs. Um, but I think you know the reality is we've been in a fairly benign credit environment for a long time, uh, and you know as a non-bank credit card company, your ability to lend is, is dependent on having access to debt, having access to a debt facility. Um, and it's not without question that the dynamics in capital markets could change. And so if I were, you know, to go back to your original question, you know, if I were on the, on the board, you know, my questions would be around, uh, you know, credit risk management, credit policy, and you know capital market strategy you know what are you going to do if you're having difficulty accessing the debt financing you need to you know write loans and to grow so with all of these entrants and potential entrants targeting the space are you worried at all about um, oversaturation or just saturation itself and if so are there any specific measures you can use to assess which entrants are well positioned to survive? Also a great question. I mean, the the space in particularly in the US is, you know, is and has been incredibly crowded. You know, when uh, the first wave of online lenders, you know, with installment loans uh, sort of came about, one of their differentiators was focusing on, you know, FICO below 680, 640, segments that were having trouble accessing credit uh, through traditional channels, traditional banks. Um, you know, fast forward to today, and, you know, uh, 
looking at some of these companies, I, I ask the question to myself, like, what is the differentiator? You know, I think there is some innovation in you know, using alternative data, cash flow-based underwriting that, that perhaps allows you to extend that story further to say, okay, you know, there were, there were customers we couldn't serve because, you know, they had no file on the credit bureau, but we can use this other information over here. Um, but the big banks, you know, big credit card issuers are moving more quickly to respond to those encroachments on their market share than they used to, uh, as far as, you know, sharing checking account data, sharing <clears throat> transaction account data to be able to better underwrite their own customers or each other's customers. Um, I think you're seeing some interesting affinity plays. My, my example there would be, you know, it, apparently this is the crypto podcast this, uh, this time. Um, some of these co-branded or uh, crypto rewards cards, frankly, not something that appeals to me personally, but you can see for maybe a younger millennial or Gen Z who is sort of uh, crypto first, the appeal of, okay, I can spend on this credit card and I'm going to get my, you know, I'm going to get my rewards in Bitcoin or Dogecoin or what have you. So I, I do think it's quite a crowded space. You know, I do think that, you know, in a benign uh, credit environment, everyone can, you know, kind of look like a genius while building up a big loan book. And, you know, you see what happens as rates start rising, uh, the monthly payments start increasing and customers have to make tough choices about, you know, what is at the top of their payment hierarchy and what bills don't get paid. Craig's very motivated by Dogecoin rewards. Just <laughs> FYI. Yep. You know me so well, Josh. I do. <laughs> Jason, I, well, for one, I have this very romantic notion of what your life is and I, I don't want you to burst my bubble if it's not true but you know imagine you kind of waking up in your your cute home right by a canal in the netherlands having your cup of dewy egg birds and taking your dog for a walk and then just spending your day kind of reading interesting things and having interesting conversations with people uh and you know again that may not be entirely accurate but uh, I'm curious for, for folks who are listening to this, right, and, and are, are busy working eight, nine, however many hours a day they work, kind of keeping the lights on and, and working on the projects of the day and, and all those things, but also want to be able to keep abreast of what's going on out there in the industry. You see a lot of really interesting outlets. You, you spend your days kind of keeping abreast of what's going on. What do you recommend for someone that can only carve off a few minutes, you know, an hour a week to, to really kind of get a sense of what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I would say it depends on what their interest area is. <laughs> um, but doing my, my best guess based on uh, on YouTube and, and uh, who I think probably listens to this podcast, <clears throat> I would say, you know, if you're looking for uh, an overview of fundraising, you know, M&A activity, product launches, uh, focused, you know, more on the sort of fintech space, um, there's a newsletter called This Week in Fintech, which does a great job of encapsulating, you know, in a very like readable <clears throat> short format, like this is everything that happened last week. Um, I think Lendit, uh, Lendit's daily news summary, which sort of uh, aggregates some of the key banking news uh, from across different publications is also a really great way to sort of scan the headlines. Uh, and of course, podcasts. 
Um, I, I recently started doing one uh, with Alex Johnson, who's of Cornerstone Research slash uh, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter. Uh, so we do a monthly podcast wrapping up like top whatever five, six headlines from the prior month. Um, 11FS, which is a consultancy out of the UK, has like a ridiculous number of podcasts, which is also a great way to stay on top of things. Uh, and I'd also plug, I feel like an interview format. Uh, Miguel Armaza does a really good interview series called Fintech Leaders. Um, and actually his prior podcast uh, when he was at Wharton, Wharton Fintech also is a really, really great resource. Perfect. Thanks, Jason. I have a flying question, if you don't mind, Craig. Yeah. Um, Jason, one of the things that isn't isn't always in your biography, uh, but certainly isn't a secret, is that you were a, a Peace Corps volunteer many years ago. Yes. And yeah, I'm curious if you can share a little bit about that experience, but but more, how do you think your your thinking about financial services or the industry has been influenced or shaped based on your experiences in the in the Peace Corps and doing what you did there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, I was graduating, finishing my master's program at University of Chicago, and I realized I had my whole life to work in offices. And decided I wanted to, you know, go do something else uh, for a while, and that something else was serving in uh, in the U.S. Peace Corps. Uh, I had, you know, the very difficult assignment of serving in the Eastern Caribbean uh, island nation of Saint Lucia, which I, I can tell you was a big struggle. Someone's going um, to do it. <laughs> I, I was not at Sandals. Uh, I had running water <laughs> most of the time. Um, uh, but in in all seriousness, you know, my um, my academic background is primarily in social policy and uh, urban sociology, and and, uh, and I did want to do some direct service work, which is you know what what my Peace Corps experience comprised, you know, and I think that really all of that together has informed you know my interest in how sort of the intersection of call it banking, fintech, and and policy. And sort of how how these things can or how these things should work together to serve, you know, not just um, you know wealthy people who need new investment products, not just crypto, but really like serve a broad range of constituencies, particularly groups that have been you know historically underserved, um, and, and you know I think now is. You're seeing a lot of conversations uh, along that wavelength playing out in, you know, in DC, in you know, private companies, in nonprofits. Um, I mean, I, I would be, I suppose, a little critical for a moment in the sense that, you know, if I hear the phrase "democratizing X" one more time, my, my head might explode. But I think that generally that sentiment is is coming from a positive place of innovators and policy people and legislators looking to harness these technologies and the changing environment to affect positive change. That's fascinating. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> no, it is. It is. It's good. Hey, uh, Jason and Josh, I was just informed by our producer that we've made podcast history. We are the first podcast ever to touch on herring, licorice, fintech, and romance in one podcast. So congratulations. 
Mazel tov. It's exciting. It is. Um, now, Jason, in, in all seriousness, this was this was great. Um, Josh, our guests are getting better than we are. Eventually, we'll just get two guests on, and we'll, we don't say anything, and they talk to each other. <laughs> That's, I'm sure, what every listener is hoping for, Craig. <laughs> no, Jason, thanks very much for your time. Uh, this is this is great, and enjoyed having your perspective. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 